Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Jack the Lad podcast. On today's episode, we've got on Martin Grigas, and just pass it over to you, Martin. Uh, Martin, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I'm a wildlife photographer, drone pilot, cinematographer. Been doing this for a very long time, so glad to be here and, and share my story. Yeah, brilliant. Um, before we came on the podcast, obviously, I said thank you very much for you know coming on and, and sharing your story with us. Um, and yeah, again, yeah, thank you very much. So, when you're from from take us back to the start. When you when did you first sort of fall in love with photography? Yeah, I mean, photography for me started almost two decades ago. I was uh, eight years old when I picked up my first camera and uh, with my dad. And in Slovakia, he he had a nine to five, and I wasn't really that interested. I didn't really have time to not time. I didn't really have time to be with him. And then when we moved to Canada, I would go around with him all the time, see him take pictures. And ultimately, I decided that's that's kind of what I want to do, too. I don't want to just stand there. I also want to be creative and, and see the world through through his eyes. So I got my first camera and started taking pictures in, in the cities of people, boats, airplanes, things like that. Every weekend, we were out somewhere taking pictures. And then uh, ultimately, that sort of translated to to nature and wildlife i mean you're in canada there's animals literally everywhere so it was only natural that it kind of floated that way eventually yeah yeah definitely um when you were first in the city taking you know taking your photos and what whatnot what sort of photos would you take yeah these were i mean i love taking pictures of people but i love taking pictures of people without them necessarily knowing it. Um, Cause I feel like as soon as I pointed the camera at them and told them I'm taking their picture, they would act completely unnatural. And that sort of took away from, from that city life. And then, so we would just take pictures uh, on the streets uh, through from the car, things like that. And uh, I loved it. I, I still do like to this day, whenever I'm traveling, I, I do a lot of uh, people photography just cause you get that interesting thing where it happens where you take a picture and you see a sign in the background and all of a sudden it kind of like transpires to that person and things just start to make sense and weird coincidences and it's strange how many weird coincidences you have of just signs and graphics and things like that and my dad's a graphic designer so um he loves it even more than i do like um again whenever we travel it is kind of the first thing we do because nature you need time for you need to sit down you need to uh, give that animal space and time and get them used to and all of this stuff with people i can just go on the street and i can just start clicking away and and come back with uh, with a lot of a lot of great content relatively quickly so when i travel that's sort of still what i lean towards unless i have two or three months to dedicate to one species so you spoke then obviously about your your um your photos and stuff like that while in the city when you were eight and you you know when you first began your journey what sort of equipment are you rocking i mean i was just using a little tiny point and shoot at first that i got for christmas I, I saved up all year for it and my parents ended up helping me buy it and um i think to this day that's probably the best christmas present i ever got i was so excited i'm pretty sure i got it on the retreat i was just crying i was like oh my god this is the best thing ever um and then ultimately when 
my dad ended up buying new cameras and things like that, um, which wasn't quite often. We were immigrants. We never really had any money to buy expensive kit or anything like that or travel or et cetera, et cetera. So eventually I inherited like his six megapixel Nikon D70. It was uh, something I shot with for years. Like even when it broke, we ended up buying another broken one and, and combining them together to, to form one working camera. And um, I had a 70 to 400 millimeter lens, which was bigger than me at that point. And so it was hilarious walking around uh, filming wildlife and I'm this tall, the lens is this tall. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was quite, quite funny and, and theatrical, I would say. With the internals of a camera and stuff like that, obviously you, I'm, I'm assuming that you can sort of take one apart and fix it, you know, build one from the inside out at this point. Ish, probably. I, I can definitely, I can definitely fix. I mean, my dad more so than me. I'm, I'm not as technically uh, talented uh, as he is. He can definitely take anything apart and fix it. I'm aspiring to be that, but I'm definitely not. Um, but there's definitely equipment we build ourselves. Like I wouldn't go so far as saying I can take apart an icon and, and merge it with a different one. There's just so much technical technicalities there, especially at this point in my career, I don't do that. Um, but there's definitely a lot of camera equipment that we specialize and that we build and that we um, form. Like we last summer, we built a camera car. So we customized the Jeep Wrangler um, to have be fully kitted with uh, all sorts of cameras. I ended up crashing it in September, so um, it, it wasn't long lived. But uh, now we're building another one. So, how did you crash it? Oh, it was just uh, the car crashed itself. Ultimately, like it, we were um, heading back from a trip, and I was just literally on a on vacation, basically, and heading home and my front axle uh literally one of the arms holding it dropped to the ground and dug itself into the ground and flipped the whole car over and um yeah that was just physically i was fine i was going about 10 kilometers an hour thank goodness but emotionally it's been absolutely absolutely draining to to have to deal with it and the insurance and even right now as we're on this call i've for the last two months i've just been on the phone back and forth with insurance because they're refusing to pay me and there's just so many logistics around it and i can't afford to buy a new car until they do and yeah it's just been absolutely exhausting so even while we're here i'm waiting for a text message to figure out what's happening today with that so all right well i hope it all goes well for you and you will you get it all sorted um yeah fingers crossed well yeah it's one of the i'm not a very multitask person i have never been so for me, until that's settled, I can't fully 100% commit to anything else in my life. Um, so again, like, you know, even replying to Instagram messages, I'm like, I need to be in a very specific mood to be able to do that. So yeah, well, I, I don't have that problem at the minute. I don't have uh, a, a ridiculous following. We were talking about it before, like the um, like social media aspect of, of like all of this. I am terrible at it um like i just i on i honestly i go on i'll just find people like yourself and then you know message and then you know wait for the reply really i'll put out stuff but i'm yeah i mean no nothing nothing like the stuff obviously that you've uh that you've got on and the reason i've got you on um so the reason obviously that i got you on and what i came across which for 
obviously the picture, the videos are amazing. But also, I've shown a lot of people it, and I I put it on my story and 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 stuff like that. And it was just quite. Um, I don't know what's what's the word. Uh, it was just I didn't re- not I didn't realize. I suppose it's sort of stupidly. I've never given it much thought. But with the polar bears, obviously in the you know the radiant colors and stuff, and the, you know all the vibrant colors and that that they were in and around, it just seems so odd to see a polar bear in in that habitat. I suppose. And that's everyone's like, and again, that's one of the reasons why these pictures I think have gotten so much traction is because they're showing something incredibly unique uh, in the sense that we haven't seen it. It's not necessarily unique in the sense that it's not happening. Um, Obviously these bears have been in this area for hundreds of years and the Arctic, I don't think people realize that in the summer it is ice free, a lot of it. And on the land, there isn't much snow, Um, especially in the Arctic that we go to, you know, it's around the Hudson Bay. It is the, well below the arctic circle it's probably you know slightly above stockholm um in terms of latitudes and long you know so it's from that sense it's not high up and the arctic in that area you don't really you still have trees but you don't have many of them uh it's not the high arctic where you're not really gonna get much vegetation you know i've i've been up there it is an incredibly barren landscape you get plants but they're only about this far off the ground um and parts of that arctic do stay ice locked in ice and snow for a lot large part of the year not so much anymore but definitely used to um but in this area you know you do get the flowers you get the trees you get the greenery it is a landscape that is incredibly magical and the way the bears are integrated into that environment is absolutely fascinating and no one has really documented it even though it does happen every single year the only reason we haven't seen it was because there was no person there to to document it and uh, in 2015 that was the idea of the project it was let's let's go to this area when everyone else has left and let's film the bears and flowers and let's let's see where it goes i didn't think it was going to go this far i absolutely did not um it would have been a dream for me to think that but uh it has <laughs> yeah so just looking at it um from you know a a normal person um i suppose someone that's outside of that thing what what have you learned from polar bears that you didn't sort of necessarily think they would do or you know characteristics or anything like that i mean <sighs> We learned so much, right? Like there is, you live with them. You know, I know the, a lot of the polar bears, I, I say I know them a lot better than some of my friends because um, I spend every hour of every single day with them, sometimes a singular bear, sometimes more than one. And you really get to know them and you really realize that every 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 bear, every animal in general has its own characteristic, has its own character, has its own way of going through life and things like that. We as people, we've gotten so disconnected from the environment that we don't understand it. Because when we look at a an animal in its environment, we see it for a very short period of time. And we say, oh, you know, that's a deer or that's a bear. And we don't understand their place in that environment. But living with them, you realize, listen, like that one specializes in hunting terns that one 
is a very different mother than that one. That's a male that's a lot more aggressive than that male. And you realize that every one of them has a different place. And you take one of them out of that environment, you potentially got rid of a generation of that characteristic. And yeah, it's something that really touched on us while while we got to know them and something that was really unexpected, I think, because again, you grow up thinking these are predators and they're solitary and um, all of these things. And then you go out there and you see 10 of them together and then you see them evolving to this quickly changing landscape. And it's it's fascinating. My thing that from when what you're talking about then, what sort of a distance are you keeping between yourself and the polar bears? I mean, I've had them knock on my window a few times, uh, in which case I could put a hand out and his face was on the other side of the glass. I what sort of glass are we well, talking? I mean, a regular window glass. If he really tried, he could go through it, but he's not like, they're not going to, they're not that aggressive. I mean, they are aggressive if you force them, but they're not, um, at no point in time was I considering he's going to go through the glass and hurt me by that point, you've done something wrong. Cause it's going to take him a while to get through. And by that point you can get out your bear spray. You can get out your rocks. You can get out your air horns. You can do so much. Um, to mitigate that from ever happening. But when we walk around them, I've been as close as 10, 15 meters to, to some polar bears um, where you don't really have a protection of camp between you and them. But it's mostly bears I know, it's bears I've spent time with that I do feel safe enough to do that with them. You mentioned there about bear spray and rocks and stuff. Do you not take a rifle or anything like that with you? We do have a, I do have a rifle with, uh, with me. It's my bear guards holding it. It's not me that has the rifle. Um, but the last thing you're going to do is use it. It's yeah, yeah, literally the, the last ditch effort of, um, using that rifle against the polar bear, but I have, you have no intention of using it. You just walk out with it because the bear has teeth and claws and you have nothing. So you want to be equally matched if something does happen, but the rifle doesn't even work in terms of against the polar bear because the rifle, the sound the rifle makes is very equivalent to uh, ice banging together in the, in the winter time. So you fire it, the bear's not really going to notice rocks on the other hand and things like that. We found that, they have uh, they freak the bears right out, and you're able to defend yourself without having any consequence consequence towards that animal. Have, have you had any encounters like that? Not really. I mean, there's there's times when we've had bears come to camp, and you just uh, I throw a rock on the ground, never at the bear, but you throw it near the bear, and and it it tells him, listen, I'm not crossing this line. Um, but never have I really felt in danger from these animals. And I've spent time around over a hundred different polar bears at this point. Um, never have they really, they do test you a little bit, but never do they full on charge you. Or, I mean, that's not to say they won't if, you know, a normal person does this. Um, but to us, they, they have never done that. The env Arctic environment is a lot more challenging in that sense. And, and that is, where we get most of our issues and, and most of the times I've felt in danger from anything. 
you mentioned there as well, uh, but sort of, well, moved on a bit. The uh, Did you say a bear guard? I'm assuming that's someone there to watch you sick, yeah, basically, so I, whilst you're... Yeah, so I have... I have a whole team with me. It's it's myself, um, usually an assistant who comes along to help with camp, help film, uh, not necessarily take pictures, but definitely to, to film our experience. Um, usually friends of mine that I've known for, for a while that I just, I take up because uh, I, I never want, I never travel alone anywhere. Um, just rule number one for my sake. And uh, then, yeah, bear guard who who comes out and makes sure that when we're busy filming animals, um, he's watching it on all the, the all the other animals. Because the polar bear you're you're worried about is not the one you're filming; it's the one that's going to come come from behind and surprise you. So that's why you need the bear guard and someone to watch over your back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, have you noticed? Obviously, there's you know big thing in the in the media and stuff all the time about global warming. Have you seen obviously the retraction of of the ice? Um, each like, uh, uh, do, you know, do you know what I mean? Each time you go, is it is it sort of getting that much further back? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you see it firsthand. Whether I mean, I worked in Antarctica before. You see it there. You see it in the Arctic. Where we go, you don't see it as much as I've seen it in the high Arctic, where the the evidence of that is extreme, but. Where we are, you see more the unpredictability of the ice, you know, and that's why I've kind of a reason I've also chosen to film bears in the summer. It's because it is a little bit more predictable because you know when that summer is going to be. In the wintertime, we've stopped to understand when the ice is going to form because it used to be like, you know, this is the day and the ice varied by a few days of that date of when it actually forms and when it melts. In recent years, it's come to a point where that variation is up to a month off, um, which has huge impacts on the bears because they're getting ready to, to hunt seals and they're getting ready to go on the ice and they still haven't. You know, some years I've seen the ice form um, in late October, uh, not late, in early November, and some years it doesn't form until early December to mid December. Um, I've seen it melt in end of or sorry at the start of july i've seen it melt at the end of july (laughs) um so there's huge variations in the arctic now as everywhere else and also the extremes of the weather that um that is there you know in 2020 i was there we were filming flowers we never got flowers because they never bloomed and there was still ice on the ice on the ocean everything was calmer there wasn't many thunderstorms um and then last year we went and we had thunderstorms a few times a week we had extreme winds extreme conditions the flowers did bloom but everything was a little bit more extreme we had smoke from the fires burning down south um it really reminded you of of how small the world is and how the things we do say you know in our cities uh, in Vancouver and the UK and you know how much implication they have on the on the planet uh, as a whole yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah i couldn't agree more um we've just had obviously uh, i don't know whether you know in i don't know whether it made international news or anything we had the um stop oil protesters all around all, all the major motorways around the uk um bringing pretty much everything to a to a stop obviously with that um yeah. 
So when you're out there, you say you go for, is it, how long do you go out there for? I mean, the expeditions usually are with the actual prep of being, say we go out of Churchill with the prep of actually being in Churchill and all of that. And then the takedown of the expedition later, um, usually about a month. Um, but I actually living with the polar bears, I spent 13 days with them in 2020, 20 days with them in 2021. And that's pure camping with the bears, um, far away from anybody or anything. And how does it all get set up? How do you come, you know, come to the thing where, right, we're going on this day, you know, you, you and you are coming, we're going to be out for this long, all the rest of it. How do you come up with the sort of plan and schedule? Yeah, so the expeditions are uh, around the end of, you know, July, August, when we go out. Uh, planning for that starts in about January, February, uh, where I work with the company I, I work for up uh, up in Churchill, and, and we start communicating of what's going to happen, when are we leaving, what kit are we bringing up, who's bringing what, and that is like a four, three, four month process, and then in June, we start to settle like flights and transportation and things like that. And you really start to pack because I found if I don't start packing a few months now in advance, I'm going to forget something. So in our photography studio right beside me here, I start laying everything on the ground. And by the end of that month, the entire floor here is absolutely covered. You have nowhere to step because you have sleeping bags, you have food, you have uh, camera gear, drones, underwater equipment, tripods, remote controls, everything here. And then you load it up into a car like we did in 21. And we drove it up to Churchill. And then you have to set up camp and fix everything from the year before, set everything up, uh, set the date. You kind of just sit around and wait for a little bit to, to figure out the best time when the weather and well the stars line up basically and then then you head out so on that you mentioned drones then and you mentioned obviously in the intro that uh, you obviously you fly on the drones how long have you been using drones and what sort of uh what sort of an advantage has that given you yeah i mean i've been we've been using drones since since they first came out i think my first one was the Phantom 2. I think 2012, I got it. Got it. I would have to uh, triple check when I actually got it. It's been a while. <laughs> um, and that drone, you know, it was one of the first first ones. It had nowhere near the quality it has now. And, but it revolutionized the industry and it revolutionized my work because my photography was always based around looking for different angles, looking for different times of year to photograph ordinary situations and, and get a different angle on, on life in general. And with the drones, all of a sudden it was like, Hey, you know, here's this tool. It's this big, you can put it in your pack and you can be a helicopter. <laughs> and so we ended up using that extensively on on so many things and then using it in such a way that we because people used it for as a replacement for helicopters high up establishers things like that and then all of a sudden we took this drone and we started flying it inside buildings and through trees and forests and 
things like that to really get a different angle on life. I mean, now you have an FPV and you can do that um, relatively easily. I mean, we were still doing it with Inspires and Phantoms <laughs> a few years ago. So it's uh, it's really revolutionized the industry and, and the way I even look at life. So with you use the drones, what um, what sort of distances can you go? I know nothing about drones. I've never used one, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but yeah, so what's the sort of range and coverage? And obviously with the cold weather up there, I, well, is it that cold? I'm assuming it is still quite cold. I mean, in the summer, we. I mean, I've had days when it's 30 degrees almost. So <laughs> oh, right. Uh, not as cold as you would expect, for sure. Oh, okay. I was going to say with that, that obviously must drain the batteries, but obviously if it's not and it's a sort of normal weather. I mean, in the wintertime, in the wintertime for sure, I mean, I've flown at minus 30. Um, and then your battery life is half and less than what it usually is, which is around 30 minutes with the new, with the new drones. I mean, you can fly them a few kilometers. You're never actually going to fly them a few kilometers. I mean, people definitely do. You shouldn't. Um, because the transmission, when there's nothing in your way, you can go really far away. But we, with our permits and licenses, we have to fly with line of sight. So as, as, you can fly as far as you can see it. Um, but we use binoculars and things like that sometimes so that we can extend that a little bit, uh, especially when we're flying in, in remote areas where you know the nearest community is three hours away by boat. So you're not going to the drone is never going to reach that community. It's never going to reach an airport. It's never going to reach a settlement. If it falls, it's going to fall into the ocean. Um, so you can push that a little bit, but you still have to see it and, and follow those regulations. And we are a licensed uh, drone school in, in Vancouver. So I do take a lot of these things slightly more seriously than, or I like to think I do just because I couldn't go to my students and, and tell them something if I'm not also following following those rules myself. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so on, on with the drones, have you ever sort of, you know, flown it up and, and around and you've been looking and you found a, a polar bear or, a, you know, any other animal that you didn't know was there until you had the drone and then you're like, oh, bloody hell, there's a, you know, a polar bear just, you know, just Sometimes. over there. Sometimes you do, but it's funny because a lot of people always say like, let's, let's use the drone as like a recon and let's, let's find the animal and then we know where it is and then we can go film it. Most of the time finding a little tiny animal like this on a drone on a screen that's this big, it's sometimes damn or near impossible. Uh, so usually I'll find the animal with my long lens i'll scout or binoculars and i'll scout the area i'll find out where the animal is and i'll pinpoint it based on you know geographical features and things like that in my head and then i'll take off with the drone and i'll fly in that general direction everything looks different obviously because a little little hill when you take off all of a sudden you have a hill and then there's another hill and then there's another hill yeah um but you're roughly able to pinpoint the animal and then you fly to it and then you know where it is and then you can film it. Um, sometimes you're going to find an animal that you weren't expecting, not necessarily on the tundra because everything's flat. You can see really far away. Uh, but I have found things like moose and things like uh, in the forest before with the drone where I was doing scenics and um, I found them at a lake or something like that. It's, it's definitely possible. It's not out of the question. Yeah, being obviously from the UK, we don't have sort of a vast array of animals not especially not sort of 
um, predators like that, especially like the polar bears, and obviously and the big game animals like moose. Um, I didn't realise how big they were until I, I was. I think it was on a Instagram or YouTube or whatever. Uh, I was watching, to, and it literally was like walked past a car, and I was like, Jesus Christ, they're fucking massive. They're, they're ginormous. I didn't. Uh, I didn't see one for a very long time in Canada. There is a lot of wildlife, but it is incredibly hard to find, and it unfortunately it is not very. It's not managed very well at all. And uh, it is extremely depleted in, in the sense that we like to say that there's so much of it here, but in fact, um, it's been overhunted. The habitat has been destructed to the point where it's unrecognizable in some areas. Um, so when you do find animals, they are hard to find, or you have to go to very specific places where there's that are still wild. Um, I did see when I saw my first moose, actually, it was in the Yukon. And I was just driving, driving my RV and I passed by a little lake and there was a moose in the, in the middle of the lake. I said, wow, like this is spectacular. I've never, never seen a moose before. So I ended up spending about three or four hours with it to the point where the moose felt comfortable enough with me that it, again, it walked like 20 meters by me when it was the sunset already and it was getting dark and, and she was going into the, into the bush to, to sleep. So she passed right by. It was spectacular. With that, it just reminded me, actually, I had a question earlier. Have you ever had a situation where you've just been sort of driving along and you've been like, oh, stop, camera out, and, we, you know, you're off to the races and you've had like a chance oh, yeah, encounter? Absolutely. absolutely. It it happens, I think, more, more often than not. Um, the polar bear expeditions have been something recently where it's like we know what we want to film. We know the animal species. We know the location. Let's go. But before that, a lot of the natural photography I did with my father or um, the people I brought on my trips was we're just driving along and we're going to see what we see and we're going to get up at sunrise and, and maximize our opportunity. But for the most part, you're just driving and you're waiting for an animal or for a landscape or for something to happen. And when it does, you're ready for it. And yeah, that, that's been a huge chunk of, of my wildlife photography and, and film career before all of this happened, because now it's more set like, OK, I'm filming this animal, you know, I'm going to go to the Amazon and I'm going to film river dolphins and jaguars or I'm going to go to Antarctica and I'm going to film penguins or polar bears or it's very specific now. But before that, it was very much like, let's just let's travel and, and see what we see. Is there anywhere that you haven't been to that you would like to go to? I mean, Africa, I, I, I've set foot on Africa, but not to the extent that I, I want to. And it's funny because I talk to, to cinematographers who mostly work in Africa and they're like, well, usually people start in Africa because it's such a wild place and they want to make their way into the Arctic and Antarctic while I'm working the other other end of that um sequence where i'm like okay i started in the arctic and i want to make my way to africa and all these other wild places but we'll see i i do have projects on the go i I'm, did just uh co-direct a documentary on on elephants uh and their conservation in africa with uh with a buddy of mine an amazing cinematographer uh the movie is going to come out uh shortly here it is going to be a very beautiful piece part of a four-part series on saving African wildlife. So we just did the elephants. Next up is uh, um, 
uh, wild African wild dogs and and other predators and big cats and it's it's a beautiful series. In Africa, what's what's the animal that you want to photograph? It would probably be rhinos or elephants. I had a long when I was a kid and I first like wildlife for me began long before wildlife photography. And when I was a kid there in Slovakia, there was the zoo behind behind our house. And I knew that zoo so well that I knew all the trainers as the five or six year old. And I used to go there all the time. And I spent so much time with the rhinoceroses there and uh, got to know them and used to go feed them in the zoo with the, with the trainers and, and learned about them and, and pet them and um just got to know them and, and built that relationship that I'd love to go to Africa and, and see them in the wild. Cause it's one thing seeing them in captivity for those rhinos, they were a stepping stone in conservation. They, they, they were an amazing breeding population and ambassadors for their species in terms of captive bred um, rhinos, but I'd love to see them in the wild and, and build those relationships uh, there like we did with the polar bears. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about while you're on air? Mm, I don't know if you have any questions. <laughs> um, I think I... Well, in fact, actually, yeah. With the um, habitat destruction you were saying about in Canada, what is that, um, what's that equated to? I mean, our, I like to say that Canadian, Canada has this amazing PR in terms of how we showcase ourselves to the world. But when you actually come here or even fly over Canada you know, the amount of deforestation, it just blows my mind. And then, you know, you have the forest fires and you wonder how they happen. It's like, well, okay, everyone knows why they happen. You know, the forest is not able to hold half the moisture it has in the past because half of it isn't even there. Uh, And then it burns out and then it rains. And then obviously it's going to flood. Like we had catastrophic flooding last year uh, and it was followed through by, by a summer full of forest fires and things like that. So it's very sad to see. And you're really, it really puts it into perspective again, you know, being with the polar bears and seeing smoke from fires that are not even anywhere near those polar bears really reminds you how small everything really is and i think we all really need to step up and and conserve our wild places and and at the same time reconnect with the natural world because again we've gotten so disconnected from it that i feel like if we found that connection again and decided to go on hike or spend some time with these animals they don't have to be polar bears it can be any animal in general um, I feel like we'd be a lot happier as people and ultimately we would benefit and the natural world would benefit as well. Yeah, definitely. I think people are far too removed from wildlife uh, and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm ex-military, so I've, you know, I've camped out under just a thin sheet and or sometimes nothing. Um, no, you exhilarating <laughs> yeah yeah i love it it's like going out and about and you know getting in in with nature like where i live is quite rural in the uk i've literally got fields all around me um so it, when i have the kids and stuff we're just you know straight out and out into the woods and whatnot and walk till uh, the little lad's legs are basically um but yeah so i'll do a thing as well towards the end of the episode i'll just get the guests to say you know a few bits and sort of uh what they would say to anyone, you know, the younger yeah. generation that wants to get into, you know, your sort of field, 
Um, so yeah, what what would you sort of say to a younger person? I mean, have a dream and, and never give up on it. You know, I, I've had this dream of, of working as a wildlife photographer, of being in that geo, working in natural history. And ever since I was I was a little kid and, and you're going to face challenges, uh, you're going to want to quit multiple times. I Believe me, I, I have. Um, but I'm an extremely stubborn person. So whenever someone told me I can't do something, I just tried 10 times as hard to do it. Um, but you're going to face those challenges and it's going to be hard, especially if you're a young wildlife photographer, photographer, or young anything, because as a teenager, that's going to play with your mind. You know, there was a period for a long time I didn't enter competitions or anything like that because I was too scared of what my peers would say about my pictures and that they weren't good enough. But just because someone says something doesn't make it so, you know, there are so many other things that come into play. Um, we're all people. <laughs> um so that would be the main main thing is uh, is yeah just don't give up on it and, and follow through. It's it's going to be difficult, absolutely, but ultimately the benefits of doing what you love are are amazing. You know, no one's going to live with polar bears for thirty three days and eat nothing but Mister Noodles and and sleep uninterrupted sleep and lose ten pounds by the end of the trip unless you absolutely love your job. Um, and that's exactly what what we do or what I do is I love it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's brilliant, and and the the photos just show the sort of attention and care that you take, and the time that you take, obviously, to get them, you know, awesome shots. Um, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today, Martin. Yeah, it's, no worries. It was a it was a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. No, no, definitely, hundred percent. I'll have you on whenever you like. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it was wicked. Um, do you want to tell everyone your Instagram and and socials? Yeah, you can uh, visit my Instagram, my wild live. Um, again, I, I, now I've gotten really good at posting, so you're gonna see content from polar bears and the rest of the world almost every single day. Uh, on there is uh, my link to my YouTube channel, where we have a documentary film coming out later this year about our experience with the polar bears, 33 days amongst bears. The film it is an amazing, amazing story, and it really is an insight into into how we got all those shots um and those are kind of the two channels i post on so i hope to see you guys there brilliant well thank you very much martin and awesome we'll see you soon everybody yeah see you guys soon cheers bye-bye